This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, LS Pod fans, it's JR here. Burt's Babes, Hoddle's Heroes, even Decanio's Dozens. We've had some iconic lineups in our history at Swindon, just like the legendary menu at McDonald's. Parkin' or Austin, sweet curry or barbecue? Why not get a McNugget share box to enjoy the debates with your mates? And thanks to book delivery, every drop-off could be a home win. Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points too. No one wants to drop points at home, and with tasty rewards to earn, you won't be missing out. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply see mcdonalds.com hello and welcome to the Lobe strangers a swindon town fan podcast with me rich pullen rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside beautiful play that is that what a good shot The work of Matthew Kilford, everybody. Outstanding. Hello and welcome to the Lobe Strangers podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. We have reached over 31,000 listens on the Lobe Strangers podcast. An unbelievable achievement and I'm so, so grateful sure i'm sure other football podcasts get 30,000 listens in the first 5 minutes but it's a niche pod just about swindon town so that's incredible thank you again so much and thank you to those who have been leaving reviews on itunes that hasn't gone unnoticed so thank you to code name hard hat ed's awesome ed certainly is awesome d righty 83 Magpie Franco, Mark M1393, Since75, Pericles the Bold, Dan Emma. Thank you so much. And if anyone else would like to write reviews, favourable, I would hope, on iTunes, then feel free to. You'll get absolute gratitude from me. A lot of people are telling me I need to promote this podcast more. Well, I think that helps. I'm not sure. I'm a complete novice at this. But again, Thank you so much. My guest for this episode is Miles Story. What I've really enjoyed about these podcasts is that they've been quite long and I talk to these guys sometimes for over two hours and I'm not going to just edit huge chunks out of the podcast to make them bite size. This gives players the opportunity to say their side of the story, be it good or bad. And Miles gives a great account of his career 
thus far because he is still at the very early stages of that career. One of the glorious things about this podcast, in my opinion, is we can cover more ground than, say, you can in print because column inches can only be exactly that, inches, but we have time to talk things through and analyse and raise questions that perhaps haven't been raised before or aren't interesting enough to sell newspapers. It's really, really interesting and Miles is no different. Miles started his career at his boyhood club, didn't make the grade for whatever reason and he had to start again and he had to take a step back and go back into junior football, the same junior football as you and I played. And then he was noticed again, so he had that second bite of the cherry. But it still didn't result in the scholarship. So it wasn't until Swindon that he finally got going fully. And that's his third attempt, something he's grateful for. And I think many other footballers would have been grateful for. We talk about his junior career, of course, but we speak a lot about his time at Swindon, his two years within the youth setup with Paul Bowden. And then, of course, his career, which may not be many in appearances, but there were many moments. Moments that made him hugely popular with large elements of the Swindon Town fan base. We talk about that baptism of fire under the tenure of Paolo Di Canio, his first senior manager, where after getting a pro deal. And then his move on from that to Kevin MacDonald and then Mark Cooper before his career ended quite promptly at Swindon with a collection of loan deals and then his move up to Scotland. I'm always, as I've said before, blown away by the willingness of my guests to sit there and talk about things that they've one talked about elsewhere before and it's their it's their evenings, you know? So Big, big thanks to Miles, just the same as I'm hugely grateful to every other guest that I've ever had on here. I hope you enjoy it. So it's time to sound the hooter for the Low Strangers podcast. Enjoy. Thank you very much for agreeing to take part. No problem at all. Pleasure. Now, I'm pretty sure that you've listened to a couple of the episodes already, so you'll know how I'll start this, and that's who did you support when you were younger and who were your childhood football heroes? A lot of the young kids at the time. I was a big Man United fan, like everyone was at the time. But I quickly moved on to um, Wolves. Uh, all my family supported Wolves at the time. My granddad, uh, mom, my dad to a degree. And I actually ended up getting a season ticket at Wolves. A lot of the time when I was playing there, I'd get free tickets, but I had a season ticket anyway in the uh, in the South Bank, which is the, the louder stand. So when I got a bit older, I enjoyed doing the singing and all that kind of stuff. So, but I had that up until about 15, 16, when I started playing on Saturday mornings kind of thing. I think I would have supported Wolves if they were sponsored by Doritos when I was a kid, to be honest. I would have gone wherever the good sponsors were. Yeah, that was a fantastic looking kit, wasn't it? But uh, <laughs> I, think it, I think it was Admiral at the time. Um, yeah. But 
but no, I trained in our kit was our kit was red, the training kit, and it was it had the big Dorito sign on it, so we were all buzzing. But uh, no, it was a decent little kit. <laughs> so, who were the players that stood out for Wolves when you were in the uh, stands? Early doors, it was probably um, Alex Ray, Paul Ince, Matt Murray, the keeper, which is weird for a striker, but mm. he was unbelievable, uh, unbeatable at times. But in terms of in terms of like strikers, I looked up to it was probably Kenny Miller, probably in his prime back then. He was rapid. He always seemed to score goals. Really, he was the perfect striker. Through playing in Scotland later on in my career, he slowed down a hell of a lot, but he was so intelligent and he still gets all his goals now. But, you know, I remember him scoring the opening goal in the playoff final in 2002, 2003. And, uh, yeah, he was just, he was brilliant. He was great to watch. Yeah, his, his managerial spell at Livingston was a funny one. Have you managed to get any information from Rafa De Vita about that? No, not really. Not, I ain't seen Rafa for a while. <laughs> Obviously, I played against him a few times. I speak to him every time, really, and we always have a laugh about the old times and stuff. But uh, I'm not really sure what happened at Livingston. It was, it was very short live obviously he's gone back to playing now at yeah. Dundee and I don't know how old he is now he must be 40 you know nearly 40 and he's still doing the same things he's still intelligent and he still gets goals and uh yeah he's, he was top draw and is it Kenny Miller where that molded your game on when you were a youngster yeah you know players like that I think we had uh, another player in called Henry Kamara who ended up playing up in Celtic as well but I liked him but no one else seemed to like him because he never scored goals but he looked the part he had like orange vapes on uh, high sock wristbands and he just looked the part and he didn't do too well at Wolves but I liked him as well he was a similar kind of player he was, he was quick and direct yeah pro- probably them too really that I really remember at that time did he not have the Senegal sweatband is that right yeah like the green uh, yellow and all that kind of thing yeah. so. well it's brilliant then because you're a Wolves fan, you're a season ticket holder, and you start your junior career at Wolves. Yeah, it all come about very quickly, really. I used to just play with my pals in the street, and um, my uncle actually realised that I was quite good. So he, he set, set me up to play for a team called Samuel Dynamos. Um, I actually met one of my best mates there, and still still good pals now. And I literally played for him for about... Uh, six months maybe and, and did really well I was scoring like hat tricks and stuff and I got picked up by Wolves uh, ready in time for the, the under eights uh, which is obviously like the, the first proper age group um, that you play at Were there any players from that setup at that point that made it or was it very much most of fell out of the game quite young? There's a couple that was in my age group Liam McAlinden's playing mm. in Cheltenham at the time I got released sort of under 15s well, maybe under 14s, under 15s. And, and uh, Zellius Mal was coming on the scene at the time. And he was basically 14 years old, but he was bigger, stronger, quicker than everyone else. Uh, and he was meant to be like the million pound teenager at the time, which I know the transfer budgets have changed nowadays. And it, you know, you're getting ridiculous figures. But at the time, it was massive. But it was, it, you know, it was a good experience. But it all felt very, you know, for, to play from under eights until under 14s in a professional academy, I, I felt it all felt very serious at the mm-hmm. time for a young kid. Like, I remember we played against Crew Alexander, who had one of the best academies, and we actually lost 21-1 as, like, 12-year-old kids, 11-year-old kids. It was that competitive with the kids and the parents and all that kind of thing. Like, one of the lads scored at 17-0 down and celebrated. So it was, it was a tense, it was tense, really, for, like, being a young kid. But, obviously, academy systems do that. It is, it is very serious from an early age. It's very interesting you say that because, I mean, I never got close to any sort of academy setup, but I played junior football like most of us did. And I saw parents argue. I saw parents know and fight. And... I stopped playing when a new coach came in and it just wasn't fun anymore. 
because they were doing proper cones and drills and is it still fun i mean you're good at it and we're beginning to hear about footballers that play for 20 years but they don't really like football they're just good at it is it hard to maintain that enthusiasm even from an early age yeah i mean it, uh, I, I was good at it but i wouldn't say i was one of the best in the academy at all mm. uh, i was quite small at the time played across every position you can think of so it, you know i enjoyed I enjoyed the training and the games and stuff, but it was a massive commitment, not just for myself, but obviously for the family and stuff as well. You know, it would be training like Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday, and then play games on Sunday. So it was a big commitment for everyone. And, you know, sometimes, you know, when you're a kid of like 11 years old, you do just want to play a match or something. You might be working on a bit of shape because you're about to go from seven aside to nine aside or whatever it would, would have been. Um, so it does get, like I say, it gets very serious at a young age, um, but I definitely enjoyed it. I enjoyed going to all the academies, uh, Liverpool, Nottingham Forest were some of the better ones, uh, that kind of thing. So I, did, I definitely enjoyed it, but I did find it very serious. I've talked to Aaron Oakley. I've talked to Lee Bedwell about their youth experiences and something that they have in common is they went through the same system from the very, very youngest all the way to pro deals so they didn't experience at any age until they were pros that low of um, not being offered a deal and being told that you've got to go elsewhere and when you left Wolves you had to drop back into junior football what what's it like at such a young age to be let go do you feel that's it are you ultimately not that bothered or do you do you have confidence that you'll kick on and find another club I think really at like 14 15 when it happened I was it felt like the end of the world I've been there since you know seven years old and playing on horrendous astroturf which I'm sure I'm going to feel later on in my career because it you know it was terrible but um it did feel like the end of the world and it was a massive hole in the family's life as well because obviously their life was revolved around taking me to training on a Sunday maybe going up to uh, Manchester to play you know United or whatever so it was a big it was a big hole that was left there for the family as well and I kind of felt like I'd you know I'd let people down obviously I'm a 14 year old kid so I didn't really let anyone down but uh, at the time I didn't feel like I was one of the better players on the team I was quite small weak and not, not as quick as I used to be when I was sort of seven, eight years old, everyone seemed to be growing up around me and it, I kind of had to wait for a little bit for my growth spurt. But in terms of like how it affected me, at school I was known for, for being the lad that's at Wolves. So obviously when that comes to an end and you go back into school, you kind of don't want to tell anyone, oh, have you got a game on the weekend? Oh, not really. So it took me a while to get over that about you know going back to school and being you know, not the lad from Wolves anymore, just, just being a normal kid like everyone else. You know, in my family, you know, I had a great childhood and a lot of support through that time and you know they basically just told me that I've got to go out there and, and prove them wrong and you know that's what I tried to do and obviously like you said I went back to to, to regional football I played for a team called Sedgley White Lions which is one of my best mates from school he was playing in that team but to go from obviously playing on academy pitches and uh, everything being professional in terms of training and games and all that kind of thing I struggled a little bit because I just thought it was some of the politics with like you know the dads like you said earlier you know dads picking their sons and all that kind of thing, you know, the team weren't doing so great and it wasn't e as easy as what I thought it would be. I ended up playing on the wing for Sedgley White Lions, not for very long, probably like two months and I just thought, I can't, you know, it's not it's not great here and I ended up moving to another team called uh, Priory Rangers and it was my mate from, uh, my best mate from Samuel Dynamo's where I played when I was six. Uh, it was his team and uh, it was a great setup for a kids team really. It, it, you know, the training facilities weren't great, but the tra the actual training was brilliant. It was it was fun, and it kind of it kind of like uh, made me fall in love with the game without being a bit of a cliche kind of thing. Yeah. 
I mean, uh, our warm up was a bit like a bit dodgy. We used to run around Dudley up the hills and all that kind of thing as a warm up, and then we'd go in the gym and play five sides. And we was literally the best team in the league. We won everything, you know, cups, leagues, all that kind of thing, all in like the space of eight months. Uh, and the manager there actually moved me to a striker, which I hadn't played up front for four years at this point. Uh, and I was sort of 15 goals behind the top scorer at the time because I joined a bit later in the season, and I finished up with about 38, 39 summit goals. And well ahead of everyone in terms of goals, so that kind of set me up for the for the next part of it. And you know, I really enjoyed my football time. You know, I think if I wouldn't have gone there, you know, the whole thing might not have happened. Really, it doesn't matter what level you play. There's always in every division, there's two or three absolute freaks of nature that score like a hundred goals in twelve games. At the time at Priory, I just had my growth spurt. I was getting quicker again. I was getting stronger. I'm quite heavy. I mean, he's like six foot, but I'm really heavy. I'm like 14 stone and I just grew into my body. I was finding it quite easy, to be fair, in the the regional football. It was, if I didn't score more than two, I'd be absolutely fuming. If I scored one, it'd be like, that ain't good enough, do you know what I mean? But no, I really enjoyed it at the time and it got me going in terms of, like I said, moving on and and back into the academy setup. The next move for you was Coventry City, which is a good move. They're a championship club at the time, a good setup. Over the last 10 years, there are loads of... uh, Coventry City products around the Football League. How did that move come about? I'm not too sure, to be honest. They obviously must have watched me playing for the for, for, for Priory regionally, but my, my dad actually started taking me up to a, a youth team in Worcester. I'm not too sure what the team was called, but there were some scouts kicking about there and I was sort of five, uh, 15 years old, training with the 18-year-olds and, and doing really well. Uh, I didn't play the games because I was too young, but I was training and my dad kind of saw it as a way of like... Um, you know, testing myself against older people and better players and stronger players, and I think it really all stemmed from there. And uh, the guy who took me was uh, it was called Richard Stevens, who's now the uh, I think he's the academy director or something there. But still, even though I had such a good season, you know, to to, to be taken as an under sixteen just before, you know, they start handing out scholarships and all that kind of thing, I still felt a little bit surprised that I'd somehow landed back in an academy system. Yeah. It was, it was all like a little bit of a blur. I was a lot older than most of the boys in the team because the boys my age were, were brilliant and they were playing with the under-18s already. Uh, so you, you Connor Thomas and Gail Bigger-Amana and people like that were already moving up to the next stage. So I was a lot older than a lot of the lads in the team. Connor, of course, he didn't have a great time at Swindon, but he was once looked at by Liverpool, wasn't he, around this stage as well. You you arrive at commentary at the business end of, of any development because you're playing alongside people that have played alongside each other for what, since they were under eights, under nines. So did it come as a surprise that they didn't take you on as a, as a scholar? It didn't, it didn't. I mean, I don't think I had the best of times there in terms of I was playing as a striker, but I weren't scoring that many goals. Mm. They, they brought in another guy called Johnson Clark Harris, yeah. who was—he's still playing the league now. He's had some good moves. He was—he was a bloke. We were—we were 16 years old. I was a boy. He was a bloke. He was everything they probably wanted me to be. But obviously, there was players like—I mean, I didn't—I didn't play with with Madison at the time. But obviously, he's gone on to do you know unbelievable things in the game. A year above me, Cyrus Christie, mm-hmm. um, who's at Fulham now in the Prem. Another another thing where it was like this guy is like an actual adult playing like youth football. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I actually remember I think he was two or three years older than me. Callum Wilson was at Coventry. Yeah. And he was the fastest player I've ever seen in my life. He was coming back from knee injuries, but I remember looking at him thinking he's an absolute specimen. And this guy, do you know what I mean? Mm. He just looked at him and thought he's class. I'd never seen him play before. And then every time I watched him, because we used to go and watch the youth team games every now and again. 
he scored, he bullied people, exactly what he does now in the Prem, but like against against kids basically. And I just thought, you know, if there's that kind of you know talent kicking about, I wasn't too too surprised in a way. You know, I think I could have let it swallow me up, and that would have been the end of it. But you know, like. Luckily, that weren't the end of it. Do you understand how and why academy coaches make the decisions they do to keep and release? Uh, in a way, they've got to they've got to think about the team not just that year, but the year after. So, you know, if, if you've got a really good sort of player who's a second year scholar, is there any point taking a new first year scholar who's probably ne- never going to play in terms of development and stuff? So, I kind of understand that side of it, and you've got to go on. You've got to go on how you've done in the games and stuff. It's you know even being a 16-year-old kid, it's cutthroat. If you're a striker, you need to score goals. And at the time, I don't think I ultimately did enough at Coventry to to, to get a pro really. Nowadays, a lot of people instantly say it's not always about goals. It's about movement. It's about providing for your teammates, things like that. Is that is that seen in the academy, or is it very much the business end? A bit of both, really. Obviously. Because you're like under 16s, you're going to be thinking about um, going into the youth team, and it is about more than that. But I honestly believe that, you know, in these academies and stuff, the people that get kept on in terms of attackers are the ones that are being talked about all the time, even with the families and all that. If they're if they're scoring and affecting games a lot, regardless of who's done all the running or who set the goal up or whatever, it, you know, it's. I think as kids, it's still very cutthroat. And like I said earlier, it's very serious. Everything's, it's about doing the job and, you know, that kind of thing. It's as close as Wolves have come, certainly in this half, possibly in the match, and they've given it away to Walters here. Can he finish it off? Alisson, Leach, yes, 2-0 to Swindon. Scott Leach, his first goal for the club. Do you feel lucky that, although you you missed out on two clubs in Wolves and Coventry, that a third one was going to come forward? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, the Coventry thing was less of a surprise to me. The Wolves thing hit me hard. But if you you know if you still ask my mum and dad now, in terms of what happened when I left Coventry, I was probably I was probably done really with football. Uh, got dragged to an exit trials, and I, I wanted to do it. But at the same time, I just thought, right, we'll just have one last hurrah and. It's basically where all the players go who've not been offered scholarships and uh, and do exit trials. And I had an absolute world in exit trials. Scored a couple of goals and was just on fire. Yeah, I, d- I don't know why. I don't know why I, I took confidence from the fact that I seemed to be one of the better players there, even though there was all coming from you know good academies. And I did really well in the exit trials. It's like three or four games in a day kind of thing. And I, I ended up having like ten teams offering me trials. Swindon being one of them. Uh, my, my, my dad actually had a call off Man United and Rangers, but I honestly believe I, I said to him, I said, Dad, you've got to be realistic. You know, I've just been released from Coventry City in the Championship. Am I really going to go to Man United and get a scholarship or, or go up to Rangers when they were flying at the time? I had to be realistic. I actually didn't end up going to Swindon straight away. I think I went to Chesterfield for a short time, but I didn't really... Um, I can't remember really what happened there, to be honest. Mm. Then I ended up going to Swindon and obviously met sort of Jeremy Newton and, and Dave Byrne and stuff. And I ended up playing a few games, trained with the team in their under-16 system, basically, and kind of just went from there. Exit trials scare the hell out of me. I would buckle under every pressure because exit trials, you you have to have a worldie, as you say. I mean, is it easier for a centre-forward to, to stand out than, say, a right-back or a centre-mid who has to play out a position or something like that? It's, it, it's like the ultimate audition where there's 22 of you on a pitch trying to get noticed. I'd say so. I'd say it's definitely easier as a striker to get noticed, obviously. 
if you're putting the ball in the net or you're taking people on and looking flashy. I mean, I, I'm always with my boots and stuff I always had the freshest boots on my, my socks were always perfect so if I was having a good game you could see whereas like you say if, if you had a centre half who's having a blinder or a right or left back who's you know done not put a foot wrong is it harder for them to get you know noticed than what it is the strikers and I'm not sure but you know I just have to try and take that chance and, and, and luckily like I said I had about sort of 10 teams offering trials. So you mentioned Jeremy Newton who's been mentioned several times on here as a very popular character and Dave Burns being Budgie's been on the podcast as well. What were the, your experiences of those two guys? When I initially went to Swindon, I remember uh, one of the lads I used to play at Wolves uh, just been released from Wolves. So we both went to Swindon at the same time, and I turned up in in my kit ready to go. Like I don't know what kit it was, but you know just a generic kit kind of thing. And he turned up in his jeans. He had to ask Nutty with Jeremy Newton for a kit, and it was like. Because he'd been so used to everything being given in, on a platter at Wolves, he couldn't believe that there weren't any kit for him as a trialist. But yeah, but you know, Jeremy Newton and and more so at the time, Dave Burns was all over me. You know, he really liked me, and I played a, played a few games and trained a couple of times in the week. But obviously, you know, not being from Swindon, I was sort of an hour and a half, two hours away. So I don't know if I trained all the time with them. Uh, I actually remember playing. At Plymouth away as an under 16 and betters had to play outfield because because my mate from Wolves was in goal so I, you know at the time I didn't really take too much notice but now when I think about it I feel terrible because betters is one of my best mates so but he played outfield he come on up front with me and it was uh it was funny at the time but so I ended up playing a couple of games and then I went to Doncaster for a week uh, after playing a little bit of Swindon for a week in digs and just to, just for them to have a look at me and ended up playing uh, a game midweek against Hull, so I trained like Monday, Tuesday, off Wednesday, played like the Thursday and trained Friday and Saturday. But we played against Hull, and I actually scored five in the game. When I come back from the the, uh, the trial digs and stuff, uh, I said to my dad, like, you know, what what have they said? Because I don't know if I could have a better game than that, really. And he said to me, he says, they want to see you in another game. Uh-huh. And I was like, right. And then um, not long after that, Dave Byrne I had a conversation with my dad and said that um, you know Swindon would be a good place for me. And I had a good vibe about Swindon really, but I just I hadn't scored in the games that I played there. Like obviously I was on trial kind of thing for the youth team, but I hadn't scored. But I was doing well, and eventually Dave Byrne said to me that he was going to offer me you know something for a scholarship, and you know I took it. And then the last couple of games ended up scoring for fun after I got my scholarship. So maybe it was a bit of a weight off my shoulders. Do you think those five goals made Swindon rush into making sure that they, they offered you a deal of some sort because scouts were always watching or if they're not watching, they've got they've got contacts in various places? Mm. I'm not sure. I mean, it, it was probably just a bounce game because obviously it's just a low, obviously in terms of uh, where they are location-wise. Okay. I think they just put a game on because it was a load of trialists. So I'm not too sure who was playing in that whole team, but they let me score five. And, you know, to see me in another game, I thought, well... You know, I'm never going to have a better game than that. So, um, you know, I had a good feeling, like I said, about Swindon, and I just took the opportunity at Swindon really. And as soon as I had the call saying they're going to offer, that was it. My heart, my heart was set. Do you think because, as you were saying earlier, that you were falling out of love of the game, or you weren't as bothered as maybe other players were? If you were though eager as anything, centre forwards after five, you would have been like, "Well, I've scored five here, so I'm just going to kick on and try and get a contract here, and not really think about what's around you." But because you're more relaxed now, um, you're you're exploring your options, and you are able to have the luxury of vibing it out. You know, making sure you go to where you had a good feeling. 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, at the time, I can't really remember, you know, properly. Mm. But at the time, I was thinking about, you know, other careers. Obviously, I've a, after um, the two sort of um, being released from two clubs and kind of having one last chance in the exit trials, I was I was looking at other things that I could have done. Maybe wanted to be a PE teacher, you know, that kind of thing. So maybe maybe it was the fact that I was. I was quite relaxed about the whole situation. Um, for me, it wasn't do or die because I'd been in this position before, and so so yeah, maybe that is what it what it was. I was relaxed and uh, just took whatever opportunity I got. Really, how did Swindon Town set up compared to Wolves and Coventry and everywhere else that you sort of kicked around? Wolves initially was you know it was a bit crap really it was uh the astroturf was, was shocking it was one of them like sandy astros where your knees you know creak after you come off and all that thing but eventually they got the the training ground sorted and that was that was real good when it was done and coventry was similar to Wolves when i left it, it had a proper training ground and the pitches were like premier league pitches and obviously it's a little bit different to the liddington uh so when you turn up at the liddington it was it was different like i said the change rooms were freezing but it, it was what it was i remember training on a pitch that I've, I've been at Swindon for seven years after this day and I never trained on it again. It was on a hill to the left of the building and I was like, what is going on here? But yeah, so it was a little bit different, but it was what it was, you know, in terms of the coaches and all that kind of thing. I felt like players that were there were closer to the coaches in terms of uh, Nutty and Dave Byrne. And uh, I felt like they were closer, they had more of a bond than maybe the bigger academies where everyone's scared of the manager. These lads are having banter with Nutty and all that kind of thing, so... That's what I noticed uh, pretty much from the setup. What's it like arriving at 16 when many of your teammates have been in the same setup for years? Do you have to try and blend in quick or do they embrace? Yeah, no one embraces at 16. They don't understand what's going on. Mm. Uh, I kind of just got myself in the change room and there was a big door that used to open and I'd be the one behind the door. A uh, bit different to how I am now. Um, but yeah, I used to pretty much I'd be behind the door. Um, all the lads seem so close, uh, to be honest with you. Um, obviously, like you say, because they played together for so long, and uh, Big Aaron Oakley is obviously one of my big um, my mates as well. Um, he was quite chirpy for a year below, but it was a good setup. All the lads, you know, got on, and that was different to the to the situation at Coventry. It felt like everyone at Coventry was in competition with each other, whereas these lads had obviously played together for a while. They'd been given the scholarships, and um, they all really liked each other, which I found a little bit weird, but. Um, you know, I, I managed to be part of that in the end, and uh, I always remember I missed the first um, week or so of the scholar, uh, scholarship because my dad took me to Florida for finishing school and passing my GCSEs and stuff. And uh, when I got back, I had a text off Eddie Stevens. Um, I don't know if Bodes had told him to get me involved or what, but he was talking to me a bit after training. He was like, "You're going to get any uh, any extra gym sessions involved after training?" We'll play a bit of head tennis and they're all just trying to get me involved. But when I look back now, it's proper busy to text someone you don't know. <laughs> so, um, no, there was all good lads and uh, bless him, you know, Eddie got me involved that way. And, um, you know, they made it really easy, even though they're all so close to each other. Was Eddie the captain at that stage or was he just nominated by, uh, by Paul? I don't know who he was nominated by. I don't know who the captain was. I think it might have been Joe Chapman, yeah. um, who was quite, you know, he, he was a leader. But Eddie was 
Eddie was Eddie, he'd talk your head off if you saw him in a bar now and fair play to him, he got me involved but it was a bit busy at the time. So we've mentioned a few of your teammates, who else stood out during that time? Harry Grant, uh, not just for his barnet, his barnet was mad but he was he was a real talker and I ended up being in digs with uh, him and him and Simmy, Chris Sim, so I really got on well with them in my time there and in the year above when we actually started our scholarship, Matt Clark really looked after us, he, he used to pick us up every day and, and you know take us to training and take us to college and then take us home and we used to give him like a fiver a week in petrol so I don't know I don't know who used to afford to do that for us but he was top he was a real top man and I think uh, I think Billy Billy Bowden might have done the same for him so I think it was kind of his turn to do it kind of thing but he you know he looked after us and obviously at the time we weren't driving so without without Clarkie I don't know what we would have done in terms of you know getting buses and all that but I'm sure we would have found a way. When you arrive Swindon under 18s have a good record in the youth alliance. I think they're I think they're two times uh, executive uh, champions, all orchestrated by the great Paul Bowden. I won't have a bad word said about Paul. Brilliant when he came on here. Brilliant player and and a really decent coach by by what I've heard from the guys that I've talked to on this podcast. What were your experiences of Paul? When I first went in, I was looking to try and get in his team, so I was a little bit scared of him. Mm. And I don't know why, because he's he's brilliant. You know, I can't say like you said, I can't say enough about him. Really, he's he's, he's top class. You could you could go to him for anything. Honestly, you know, he used to. He used to keep the discipline, but he used to love like being involved in the in the banter side of it and all that kind of thing. But he was still he, he still had that level of respect off all the lads, and um, he commanded that respect from from day one, really. But you knew at the same time that he was there for a laugh as well, if you know what I mean. I remember one time in college, Big Dan Evans, who was the nicest guy ever. He was like an adult at seventeen years old, eighteen years old. He was he had his head switched on and. All that kind of thing, but we're in we're in college, and we had this teacher called Sue, and she used to bang on at him all the time, and uh, she'd be talking to him and talking to him, talking to him, moaning at him, and eventually he just went, "Oh fuck off, Sue," and uh, obviously all the rest of us burst out laughing, and she ended up like being quite upset about it. She used to be like, "Oh, I'm going to call Paul Bowden, I'm going to call Paul Bowden, blah blah blah." So we ended up having a meeting with with Bowden, and it was all very serious, obviously because of. You know, we we got the the college teacher upset and stuff, but he couldn't stop laughing. Both he, he was smiling about it, but then you know we we ended up getting running or something like that. But he was laughing at it like deep down, and that was that was what I was like. He was he was brilliant. You could you could do anything, and um, you could ask him anything, and you know he's a real a real big influence for a lot of the lads there. If you're listening, Sue, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> Paul Bowden from the spot for Swindon. He scored! What's what's a football-related bollocking by Paul Bowden like? Well, you know, he commanded respect because of his record, basically. He was, you know, like you said earlier, he had such a good record in terms of developing players. And to be honest, in my first year and, and all that, we didn't really lose a lot of games. You know, we obviously won the league, and so I weren't really on the end of any of his, any of his bollockings, but... I remember pre-season he took us up some, I don't know what it was called, but he took us up some castle running up and down the hills and that 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 felt like it was a bollocking in itself. It was it was carnage, but that's obviously something he did traditionally. And now he was good, really, but he used to get his point across in the right way. You know, he, he didn't really ball and shout all that much, but like I said, he had that much respect from the lads. He didn't really need to. At this point, you've got plenty of ability and raw potential. But how did 
Paul help you develop as a footballer? I think really, you know, like I said, with my exit trials and that, it was kind of like, not that I wasn't bothered, it was more, you know, we'll see if this works, if not, I'll do something else kind of thing. So to come in and straight away, you know, be one of the playing every game as a first year scholar was a big thing and he installed a lot of confidence in me in terms of you know being one of his main men even though as a first year scholar but I think in terms of the whole team he developed everyone in terms of being a team we played 4-4-2 every week you know everyone knew the jobs we had like Simi on the left Simi left back James Richards up and down Evo and Big Tom at the back just keeping it steady Abs just used to break it up and Clark used to just swaz the life out of everything looking pretty you know he was a joke technically Clark he was brilliant and but I played up front a lot of that time with Seb, uh, Seb Broomfield, and it was pretty much, um, you know, Seb would hold it up and link all the play, and I'd do the dog doggy work, I'd do the running, and, you know, I still managed to, to do well in the first year and, and score goals, and, you know, it was a brilliant team, and obviously we won the league. How important is winning the league? Is it inconsequential, like, in the development years? So is it, like, it's all about developing winning is a bonus yeah I mean obviously it is about developing because everyone ultimately wants to get the pro there's no there's no hairs and graces about it everyone's there to try and get a pro deal in professional football but as a team and um, you know and that kind of thing it, it did mean everything winning the league because Bodes had won it twice before with his other teams and um, he had a reputation for being a winner and I don't think anyone really wanted to let him down and you know regardless of the clubs that were in the league there were some big clubs like Swansea, Bournemouth it was known that Swindon were the team for, for that league, for that sort of region. And we wanted to keep that up. And um, I think we did that. And, you know, Bodes did that really just through, like I said earlier, you know, everyone knew the jobs and it was really hard to beat, basically. During that first year as a scholar, so Danny Wilson's in charge and then it's Paul Hart. Did they have much interaction with the youth team? Were they around or were they focused more on the first team? Uh, obviously, at the time... the, the there weren't really, I think Billy Bowden was training with the first team and Nath Thompson and all that. But in terms of uh, us lads, we kind of used to go over when they needed bodies kind of thing. Obviously, you know, they, they were struggling a little bit because I think, did Billy Painter leave that the summer before? Yeah. And then obviously we lost Charlie later on in the season. So, um, you know, I used to go up there quite a bit as as a young sort of first year scholar. And I, I bet that pissed the second years off a little bit. You know, at the time I didn't really... You know, I used to like going up because of oh, I'm training the first team. But in the, in my head, I was like, oh, this is tough. Do you know what I mean? So it was only the odd time really with Danny Wilson that I was training. I felt a little bit out of my depth. You know, big flint in Scotty Cuthbert was just writing me off, throwing me about like a throwing me about like a wet tracksuit. Honestly, it was it was tough. And we had people in that team like you know Dougie and Michael Timlin, and when they were shouting at me to hold it up and it wasn't, I felt like you know just get me back to the youth team, get me through them them hedges there and getting back to the youth team but it was tough you know I think the first team obviously struggled a little bit because like you said you know, Billy Painter left and Charlie left and uh, we had like Vince Pericard and uh, Elliot Benyon but they weren't as prolific as, as Charlie and Billy and I think that's probably really why I got a lot of time as a first year you know training with the team. I think this is what a lot of us do forget about just the things like when you're summoned to the first team it's not like all right Miles how you doing yeah let's get going they treat you like one of the uh, one of the first teamers and oh man I would buckle hard yeah it's tough it's like that was that dressing room was really old school it was like you know if you're coming up you need to come and do a job and yeah I, I was out of my depth and like I said I just want I was dying to get through the hedges and get back to training with boats and <laughs> and be a, a sort of big fish in a small pond again, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Senior side, 
That season is an absolute car crash, so it's a stinker. We were in the playoffs the year before, and now we're, we're going down. And we are relegated the, uh, for whatever reason. The side fails to click. We lose Charlie Austin, as you mentioned. Danny Wilson goes. In comes Paul Hart. That's a disaster. But Paul Bowden comes in, and he's one of your biggest fans. He rates you, and he brings you into the squad. Nathan Thompson's back in. He'd already been with the first, along with Billy, as you said, as well. You and Matt Clark, I think, are the two that are drafted in. And you get some final minutes in those uh, in the, the last game of the season against Tramier. Yeah, it, I think the Olden game was yeah. where I actually made my debut. It was, uh, I think it was like 15, 20 minutes, but it felt like forever. Felt like I was on the pitch for like two hours. I was absolutely blowing out my ass. The physical demand was massive compared to youth team games and even reserve games because you play reserve games and the pros don't want to play you know, because they're playing with kids and stuff. And it was just a completely different feeling. I think I actually felled one of the Oldham players just running around. I just ran into the back of him and the ref actually called me over and basically said, come on, pipe down. I know it's your, I know it's your debut and that. But yeah, it felt forever. It felt like I was on the pitch forever at Oldham and it never really sunk in that that was my debut because I was just absolutely fucked. And then obviously the Tranmere thing, was that the last game of the season, was, was it? yeah. Yeah, so that was... I knew there was a chance that I was going to maybe get on again uh, with Bose being the manager and my mum come up to that game and my mum's terrible on motorways and she actually got her first and last uh, speeding fine on the way to Tranmere. She's never going to get one again because she was shocking at driving but she's uh, she did well. I mean, she, she used to come to the games when she could and she used to hate the motorway but credit to her, she used to get on there and she come to the Tranmere game and, um, you know, it was similar to Oldham really. I, I was blowing again because it was... You know, it was it was like I said, it was different to to youth team and stuff. But I actually did a lot better in this game. I managed, I remember nicking the ball off someone in the fullback area and like running the length of the pitch and cutting it back, and someone missed the target. But you know, I nearly got an assist, and I felt like right, that was a bit better. So you know, something to build on, and um, you know, I was just immensely proud, really. It was a frustrating game because we were so good. It's one of those ones where you're like, well, why couldn't we be like this for the whole goddamn season? I mean, you were up against some. Pretty experienced forwards. I mean, Ian Goodison, the Jamaican international, he played that game. Aaron Cresswell played that game at the back. It might have been the one that skinned. So no mugs by any man. But we were always going to win that. And I'll tell you why. Because a a player called uh, Zumana uh, Bakayogo played. And his record against Swindon is played nine, lost nine. So it was never in doubt, that one. But from the disappointment of Wolves... From the disappointment, not so much, but still disappointment of Coventry, within a year, you're in the pros. And lots of your contemporaries, lots of the guys that got scholarships, are still nowhere near the the football league. That must come at quite a significant level of pride. I don't think about it often, but... I think, like you said earlier, to be released twice and uh, and get to where I've you know I've, I've managed to get to is it, something I can be proud of. You know, looking back, uh, a lot of the lads who I probably thought was better than me at the time at Wolves and Coventry, I've gone on to, to to not do anything in the game. So I think I've got to take you know a bit of credit for that, and you know I'm I'm proud of it. And you know it did feel surreal, sort of playing them last two games and. And being in the first team as a as a first year scholar, and you were nominated for Football League Apprentice of the Year that season, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, I knew I wasn't going to win because Nick Powell was was playing for Crew and he was he was playing a lot and he was scoring for the first team. But it was a brilliant experience. You know, I went up with Bodes. So I put my first suit on. You know, probably too big for me, and it weren't tailored at all. So my my trousers were baggy, and but I went up with Bodes and. 
uh, had dinner and obviously I had a few cokes and uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was surreal to be surrounded by you know them kind of that caliber of player. Um, I remember Wilfred Zaha got Championship Player of the Year that year mm-hmm. and he was absolutely embarrassing in that season. He was you know he was taking the piss out of everyone he was playing against and I remember thinking he's only a few years older than me and he's unbelievable. And the host was actually asking him um, whether he's going to play for England or the Ivory Coast and. Ultimately, he chose the Ivory Coast. He was he was top. So to be surrounded by players like that as a first year scholar, and you know, like we said earlier, having been released and stuff, it was it was brilliant. Yourself and Paul Bowden returned to the youth setup as one Paolo Di Canio is installed as town's manager. Uh, you enjoy another great campaign in the youth alliance, scoring something like eighteen goals. And but the good news for you is that despite you're still a scholar. Decanio still uses you in the first team. Are you training pretty much all the time with the first of this stage or just at the early start of the season when Decanio was putting you on the bench? It was basically um, at the end of the season of my first year scholar, Bode said to me, you know, you've done well. He says, come back in the, in the summer uh, for pre-season a bit heavier. So I think I took his orders far <laughs> too well. Uh, Far too to heart. I went to Holland and Barrett and bought like um, creatine on the penny sale. And uh, I smashed the gym. Hardly did any cardio, but I was massive. But I couldn't move. So I come back for pre-season and Bose was giving me a bit of shit. He was like saying, come on, you know, fat arse and all that. And he was making me do extra runs. And at the time I was like, oh, fuck, do you know what I mean? <laughs> but no, I had a good season. I think eventually in all competitions, including like the uh, Youth Cup and that, I ended up with like 20 odd goals. You know, I scored two against Birmingham. Obviously, we put them out, but I actually come off of a migraine after about 60 minutes because I sometimes get them with floodlights, but ended up coming off in that. But I got a brace against them and we had a good season again, but I think we were disappointed that we didn't win the league because, like we said earlier, it was so it was such a big thing that Bodes was the main man about winning leagues and he was a winner. So I think we were disappointed not to win the league. And the younger boys at the time said they were going to smash it next year. They were quite chirpy about it, but... I don't think they won it the year after either, obviously. But in terms of the in terms of Di Canio, you know, he's bringing people in and all these players that you know we hadn't really heard of. You had like Oli Risso, who's an absolute machine. But you know, so I started training a little bit, but I was doing better in training that year because ultimately because of Bodes, you know, he told me to get bigger. And when I was training with Di Canio, I was a lot better and a lot more confident in my body. And I ended up training quite a lot with the first team. Uh, and he was actually quite reluctant to to let me play youth team games because I was on the bench and stuff and you know it was it, it was it was good it was uh it was different and you know i enjoyed being part of the setup even if it was sort of on the bench and not playing as many games in the youth team as what i would have liked do you feel any level of awkwardness at this stage because it was much publicized at the time you don't have to go into much detail about it but the relationship between De Canio and Paul Bowden is not great there is the stories that I've been told by Aaron about them not allowing the youth players to even watch the first team play but there's Miles' story um, getting those opportunities and your pals are told to just jog on and go and uh, play with in the youth fields it, do you feel that at the time or are you just like guys that's football yeah it, it is awkward because obviously they turned out to be real good pals of mine and you know when I used to come through from training with them I may be joining with a small side of games and then Bodes' training still be going on so I used to run through the hedges and carry on training with the youth team it was kind of like oh here he is you know he's, he's come trotting over now but they used to ask me for what the shape was and all that kind of thing and what his training was like and you know that kind of thing but Di Canio he didn't really trust uh, anyone to do anything into, other than himself. He was that he was that um, regimented in his training that 
the attackers and midfielders um, would do training with him um, and he'd take us to do like crossing and finishing or something like that. And the defenders and goalkeepers and all that kind of thing, obviously the goalkeepers are joining, but the defenders would just be doing like isometrics, like jumping over hurdles and basically walk, keeping warm because he didn't trust anyone to train them like he could train them. So I can kind of understand where that, you know, the relationship kind of breaks down between them two. But, you know, it, like you said, it was a little bit awkward, but... You know, I enjoyed being part of it. I enjoyed being in the loop with what was going on in the first team, and um, I wouldn't change it. The guy gave us an unbelievable two seasons, or one of the bit seasons. But to not allow young footballers watch a FIFA Pro licensed coach in action just seems a bit backwards to me, to be honest. But that, but that's my opinion. In nearer to nearer to the end of the season, you're back in. You're on the bench for the five nil championship game against Port Vale and you play in the uh, I think you play in the stand-up for the champions draw at Bradford at the end fantastic memories for us as fans but what were your experiences with Paolo Di Canio like it was it was you know I really enjoyed working with him it was it was tough it was it was rewarding at the same time I mean the first team went for a run where they were you know unbelievable winning like 5-0 and They'd be playing in games where it was 1-0 up until 70 minutes and the game would finish 5-0 because they were that fit and that strong. And for me personally, he's always going on about my barnet and I used to turn up in this shitty little earring and uh, one of them fake stretches that went through your ear and looked like a right knob looking back. But he used to comment on that a lot. And But in terms of in terms of winning the league and stuff, I remember, really, the only thing I remember is Sai running around in his pants. That's really what I remember from that day. And then... Obviously, the Bradford game come about. I actually remember sitting in the in the changing room before the game, and like I said earlier, I'm one for wearing fresh boots, really bright, and so I had these fresh white boots on. John Bostock was there at the time, and he was into his boots and that, so I'd be talking to him about my boots. And I used to have like a high sock with loads of white tape around it, and like wristbands on and that. And I actually remember Matty Ritchie and Alan McCormack like giving each other the nod to like look at this, look at this fella here. Do you know what I mean? He's got these fresh boots he thinks he's he thinks he's made it but as soon as I saw that I took all the tape off I remember I took, <laughs> I took all the tape off I took one of my wristbands off I kept one on and I was like oh I need to I need to settle down here a little bit do you know what I mean I think did John Bostock start that game maybe yeah he, uh, he was he was brilliant he was you know he's obviously playing at a good level now and I think at Swindon nobody really knew what his position was I mean even now I don't know where he plays now does he play centre mid or but he was he was top drawer and he was brilliant with the lads so yeah, that, that that's really what I remember from the from the Bradford game, and you know that that's it really. It was it was a good time for the club, and it was good to be part of it and in and around the photos. Obviously, I didn't get a medal because I didn't play a lot, but it was nice to be in and around it. That is a mad League One. Horrible, horrible last day in the in the youth setup where you learn your fate, and for Lee and the rest of the guys it was seen as a no-brainer that you were going to get a deal. You do get a deal, but you, your mates, Joe Chapman, Harry Grant, Chris Sim, Eddie Stevens and Ben Whitehead are, are told they're not getting deals. Is there still a lingering doubt for you? Like, because you've been through this before to some degree that, oh my God, I might have been well playing for the first team, but maybe they don't want me or was it very much set in stone? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you, you spoke earlier about the, the relationship with Bodes and, and, and Di Canio, so I don't know how much, really, they spoke about who was getting a pro. Yeah. 
obviously in past years Bode's had a massive input because he'd speak to obviously Danny Wilson and all that kind of thing so he had a big input on who was getting them Betters used to try him the first team a little bit when we were second years and obviously I was in and around it quite a lot um, but I never I never really thought I was I was dead on to get one because you know you just never know with Canio I mean he, he could easily at that time we were bringing in players on big money you know left right and centre so I just thought, you know, if I get one, I get one. And if not, we go again because, I've, like you say, I've been there before. And uh, after the season I had, I was, you know, I thought, you know, the season I had in terms of goals and the season before as a first year being nominated, I thought there'd, there'd be a chance somewhere else. But, you know, I got my I got my pro and that, that was a big day for, for everyone, really. How does it work when you when you get contracted? And what I mean by that, not Swindon have offered you a deal, brilliant. Are there clubs lingering? waiting to see what's what's happening or are you pretty much tied down to Swindon at that stage? I think obviously with compensation and that you are you are pretty much tied down mm-hmm. to if they offer you something and you say uh, yeah you'll take it that's it basically um, I don't really think you've got an option but at that time I didn't really want to, I had no intention of going anywhere else I wanted to work with Canio on a full-time basis and, and nothing else really coming to my mind you know I was just really proud and honoured really to be part of it for the next season. Why do you think your scholarship at Swindon was so successful? Because it certainly wasn't the haircuts. <laughs> no, it wasn't the haircuts. Uh, all the all the flashy boots. I think it was. I think ultimately it was Bodes. He was like I said earlier. He installed massive confidence in myself that I, I didn't have before and after getting released. And think everyone's understanding of the game was so much better after everyone left, regardless of whether they got pros or not. We all played in a system that. We understood, and it was he was top drawer in terms of his training. And I think honestly, every, everyone left that scholarship, whether they got pros or not, better people, better players. And it's you know it's all down to Bodes and, and Jeremy Newton, really. I love this boots talk, or that some people like obsess about them, and some people just flat out don't care. I mean, some some people don't care. Like I remember Jonathan Douglas had the worst coppers you've ever seen, but he used to roll about and dominate games and the sole was coming off him and the dubbing was crap on him. He could see all the white bits that he wanted black out, but he didn't care. But for me personally, I always feel better when I'm wearing flashy boots, like in terms of colour or I can't actually wear a black pair of boots, whether it's training, whether it's games, I just can't do it because when the ball comes, it ends up going underneath my foot and I don't know why. (laughs) I mean, it happens in flashy boots, don't get me wrong, but I can't wear black boots. It's just something I've always been the same. I've always had the best boots and, you know, I've cost my mum and dad a fortune down the years getting the best boots, but it's what I had to do. It's, it's what it's what I like. Middle-aged men everywhere has just sighed listening to this yeah. and you talking about <laughs> those uh, lack of black boots. Okay, so when you join Swindon as a youth, you're a little bit intimidated by Paul Bowden. Now you're a pro. And it's a little bit different now because you've got Paolo Di Canio as your manager. Your first manager as a pro is one of the most... Well, it's, he's got extremely high standards and he's known for those gruelling regimes and that pre-season is tough. Cy Ferry talked to me about Italy. You went to Italy scoring against a Verona Select eleven, and you played against uh, Bayern Munich's second team. How did you find that first pre-season as a professional? Well, it, it all pretty much started in terms of getting ready for pre-season. The day I got told I was getting a pro, I remember just trying to find somewhere in the stadium that I could just talk to my mum and dad because 
Uh, obviously, it's a bit tense with the rest of the lads. You don't want to be phoning them in front of them saying, oh, I've got a deal. And the rest of the lads are really disappointed. Yeah. So I remember going into the gym and uh, I was on the phone at the time to, trying to get hold of my mum and dad. He called me over because he was in there absolutely smashing out a gym sesh because he was all over his gym. He had his tattoo and he was looking pure intimidating at the time. And uh, he basically said, be ready for pre-season because it's going to be so tough. And he had a little comment on my hair again. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to cut my hair. So I'll come back to pre-season with short hair, give him no excuse to comment on my barnet. The earring was gone. So I turned up for pre-season in Italy. It was honestly the hardest two weeks of my life um, to, to this day. There was a lack of food because all the food that um, he approved of, it was like dry pasta, no sauce, no, no, not even a bit of ragu on the top. It was you know, meat, vegetables and olive oil and parma ham and all that. It was really tough in terms of, you know, you're training your balls off and you're burning off like 3,000 calories and you're getting meals that are like 500. So, you know, I even ate swordfish on that on that trip. I've never ate it since, but I just thought I'm going to eat whatever I'm given here and just eat all of it because I'm absolutely bollocks. So that's the, the first and last time I had swordfish. Um, but I ended up rooming with Wes. I think he got stitched up a little bit because, I was, you know, although... In the end, I got on really well with Wes and we had a laugh and that. I think at the time, as a first-year pro, I was really quiet. So he was probably pissed off that he's rooming one of the first-year pros. So I roomed, I roomed with Wes and kept myself to myself in terms of uh, the rest of the lads. Obviously, spent some time with Bedders when, when I could. and But a lot of the time, it was just in our room. Um, I got through the whole box set of The Office on the laptop. And that's all I remember, really, is training hard and watching The Office. It was, it was tough. I come back stick thin. Um, but absolutely flying. Um, so yeah, it, it was real tough, but it was it was good to play against you know d- teams of a different from a different country because it's different football. Uh, I think I managed to score in one, and then the Bayern Munich game was good because you know they turned up in their trackies, and you're like, we're actually playing against Bayern Munich here. But no, it was brilliant. It was a good, it was a good good experience. What was there a plan for Miles' story with Decanio? Well, you were very much like you're a first team player now, so I don't care if you're Andy Williams or Miles' story. Um, you're fighting for that that starting role and be ready to play or did they have a very vocal plan to just break you into the first team gently uh no i think it was uh, it was very much if you were good enough you'd play with decanio and that's what i liked about him it was in terms of the, the whole team everyone was involved in everything you know if you had too many bodies in terms of finishing it changed the drill so everyone could be a part of it um when we did when we played games regardless of whether we won or not, we'd been on the Sunday watching clips and everyone took part in that. I've been in clubs of the past that just have the starting 11 and subs who played in the game, do the clips and the rest of the lads wait around. But he got every single person involved and every single person had an opportunity to get absolutely hammered if they did something. Mm-hmm. I remember Andy Williams, obviously Di Canio liked Andy Williams because he played a lot, but we could win a game 4-0, Andy Williams could score two and he used to have this folder for each player and he'd clip the folder and Andy Williams' clips would be like two pages worth of like clips that he's done wrong in the game, regardless of whether he's scored or, you know, it was funny. He, kind of, he was so passionate about um, the little things and Andy he used to switch off a little bit. Um, and uh, I remember once he, Decanio, like, backheeled the wall. It was one of them, you know, the soft wall. And he got his boots stuck in the wall. And, you know, you try not to laugh. But at the same time, you know, if he catches you laughing, you, he's going to do you. So it was good. But like I said, he kept everyone involved. And I don't think it was a real plan with me. It was kind of, 
you know, I was a first team player. Um, I asked to play in a couple of reserve games, but he was reluctant to because I was, you know, in and around the first team and I didn't play a lot of minutes um, that season as a first year pro, but eventually he did start using me a little bit. I was talking to, after I did the Lee Bedwell episode, I was talking to a, a town fan and he had a theory that Fodring was brought off in that Preston game for Bedwell just to remind Fodringham that there may not be a senior second keeper but there's a goalkeeper there to replace you, so don't get too complacent. You've got the latter stages of Benson, but you've got James Collins and Andy Williams ahead of you. And every now and again, he does sort of bring you on for final minutes there, here and there. Are those tactical or they are just to just to give them rest? Because he doesn't give people rests, De Canio. He'll, he'll make you play 120 minutes, even if it's a 90 minutes game, um, if he has to. So were you ever surprised when you, when you got those minutes? He played his strongest yeah. team whenever he could, regardless of what competition it was in. So, you know, when I was getting the odd five minutes or whatever, I knew ultimately I weren't going to be making a massive impact, but I just kind of took it as a compliment, really. And maybe I had a good week in training. Maybe, maybe like you said, it was just to give some of the boys, you know, sometimes maybe they had a good game and he just wanted to bring them off so they get a clap off the fans, but... I weren't bothered. I was getting on the pitch, and um... yeah, you got a, your first game that season was only a couple of minutes, but it's in that great Brighton Cup game where we absolutely dismantled the people like Bruno, Gordon Greer coming back, Wayne Bridge, Vicente, for God's sake, was <laughs> you know absolutely incredible. But it's not until October where Miles Story star really does begin to shine. Um, it starts with your first goal. Um, against Stevenage in that wonderful blue and yellow kit, one of my favourite, the Boca Juniors kit. Um, I don't know what your opinion on it is, but I, I absolutely love that kit. But is it a relief to get that first goal? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that might have been my first start, and I'm not really sure how that come about. It was kind of, you know, you, you kind of know on the Friday what the team's going to be, and it was a shock to me. So I told my family that, you know, there's a chance here I'm going to be starting, but until... Until I was in the dressing room, uh, ready to leave the changing room, I still thought there's a chance here that I'm going to get pied last minute. Uh, yeah, I started the game and and uh, Matty Ritchie put in a unbelievable cross, just stood it up and luckily for me, there's nobody around me. So I kind of had to edit in, but I never used to score headers. Um, even in the youth team, I probably never scored a header. But the Decanio had been working on that with me in terms of you know being better in the air and jumping off one foot and rather than being flat-footed and... I think he was he was pleased really because it was something that he worked on in terms of getting me better in the air. Uh, I ain't really got much better in the air since then. But you know, it, it was weird that my first professional goal was a header. And it's alongside Paul Benson, who's on the other side of the career scale. He's, he's still playing today, but he's he's a veteran. Do you feel any pressure when you've got? I mean, Swindon's bench from that Stevenage game is depressing to me as a fan now because it's Jay McEverly, Simon Ferry, James Collins. Gary Roberts, Louis Thompson and Adam Rooney along with Bedwell in goal. As strong a bench as we could ask for. Do the veterans, not veterans, do the more experienced players like Rooney who's been brought in and James Collins who's scoring loads of goals before he joined, do they think, what the hell is he doing starting Miles Story? I mean, it, like, like I said, it was, an old, yeah. it was an old school dressing room. So, you know, maybe there was a little bit of, uh, you know, what's going on here, but... I don't know if we had Villa in the cup a few days later, but I've, like I said, I don't really know it come about me starting. Um, I don't know if I did well or uh, I don't know. I don't really know what happened, but 
to start up, up front with with Benson was, was brilliant for me because you know he's a class bloke. He was a top pro and he was great with the young lads. He used to talk talk to us all the time and he basically coached me through the whole game. He didn't he didn't show up um, telling me what to do and he really got me through the game. But you know Benson was what Benson was. He flipped absolutely everything on. You know I did the running like like I used to do in the youth team with Seb up front and it worked and obviously we we pumped them at the time and. You know, he was really pleased with me when I got my goal, and the rest of the mm. lads were happy for me. Really, um, you know, Alan McCormack was—he was fairly harsh with the young young boys at the time, quite hard, old school. But he, he was harsh to the young lads. But you know, he was harsh in a way that was—you know—it's probably different now in, in teams. But he was harsh in a way that you know it meant he liked you kind of thing. And he kind of took that role mm. on when Dougie left. Alan McCormack was 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 harsh, but he was buzzing for me. And you know, that, the whole team really was was really. Rafa Davita comes up to me and gives me a big hug as soon as I score and you know what a lovely fellow he is as well so oh yeah the absolutely smashing guy when i when i spoke to him what was the post-match like so i mean is everybody like well done good work or is it like oh god it comes to canio he's gonna tell you tell tell us what we did wrong in a 4-0 win away from home yeah i mean we've of course got the uh the video session the next day and for the first time, I was up for getting hammered. So he opened my folder up, and I had about you know the same size list as Andy Williams. It must be because we were similar players. He must have annoyed him. No, it was it, it was good. Obviously, he was a little bit. We, we'd win a game, and his demeanour changed a little bit. But you know, if you lost them games and then had the video session on the Sunday, mm-hmm. it was carnage. But it was a great win, and um, it put us it put us in a good position. And uh, no, after the game, it was you know it was a good bus journey, but it was a uh, it was a sober bus journey as as were every one of them. us to probably your finest uh, minutes 20 minutes or so for Swindon which was Aston Villa in the League Cup uh, you are on the bench for this one uh, James Collins comes in Swindon are 2-0 down um, due to goals from Benteke and Agbonlaho it's the, the game is playing out when you come on in the 75th minute can you remember what you you your job, what, what Decanio would have been saying to you before you go on, or that is he bringing you on just to go on, enjoy yourself against a big club? I mean, to be honest with you, I wasn't mm-hmm. all that keen on coming on. I mean, I just scored my my first goal, and uh, I was still riding off on that wave kind of thing. And I actually went to Harvester uh, with my my dad and my granddad before the game, um, just to get a bit of food in because they'd come up to watch. And uh, I can't remember, but. I think we had a, a cup game on the Saturday against the lower league opposition. And I remember saying to my dad, I said, oh, I'd rather just be on the bench tonight and um, maybe come on or start the next game. But, you know, like you said, it, maybe it was the last roll of the dice from Di Canio. He stuck me on and, you know, I mean, the first goal, I kind of just sprinted front post and uh, just got whatever I could on it. And that was something that the... Um, that Di Canio was getting on the strikers for a lot in in our meetings. He said, you know, we're getting good balls in the area, but 
there's nobody going front post if, if it's not mm. such a great ball. So I managed to get some on it. And Jamie, if you see the, the clip, Jamie McEverly grabs my head and says, that's what you get for going fucking front post. And, you know, in his, in his accent, he's very, sounds very aggressive, but he's a lovely bloke. And, you know, Decanio always wanted one striker near post. So I managed to do that. And then the second goal, I don't really remember the game a lot, to be honest with you, but the second goal was just pure, pure instincts. I think it was Andy Williams who like techers it in low and, I knew I was past the post, so if I hit it straight, it was gonna, go, you know, I was gonna miss the near post. And some of that I'd done quite, quite regularly, just a little flick. And um, it was against the top nice. keeper. Was it Shea Given? Or um, yeah, it was against the top keeper. And you know, it was brilliant. Uh, I don't know. It was pure instinct. And as it went in, I was like, I can't believe I've actually just backheeled it. One, one of the greatest goalkeepers in Premier League history in front of 14,000 at Swindon, which is not a regular occurrence. Even under the De Canio era, we don't sell out very often. We're very much in the sevens, eights and nines. So 14,000 under lights. I know you don't like playing under floodlights, but I like seeing Swindon play under floodlights. Do you at least remember the roar on that second one? Because it was out of a good... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember my celebration. It looks like a pie. Someone like someone comes up to me, and I just run off, like giving it the up to the fans and stuff. It it was well to be honest. It's probably what you know. It's probably the greatest bit of my career, greatest moment of my career. And obviously, Ben Teke decided yeah. to ruin the evening for everyone, and get his second. But you know, to play against people like that, the guy, the guy was on a different level. He had absolutely everything in his locker. He was big, strong, powerful, and he just they just had too much for us in the end. So. It would have been better if we'd have drew, but it is what it is. And this is this is the game that comes up, and I bring it up mostly with with I brought up with Aaron and I brought it up with Lee. God, he got that Macclesfield lineup so wrong. I think he, he, he I think he prioritised it. I mean, he wanted to win every game, and he plays like you said, he plays his strongest team. But that was a game for for you, for for Aaron, for Lee, who were all, all three on the bench. Really should have got minutes in that in that one. As much as it, you know, I thought I should have played, or, or I can't really remember the team at the time, but obviously it was a strong team. And Bedders was doing great at the time. Obviously, Wes was, it was brilliant, and uh, he was his main man. But, you know, Bedders was doing great. Um, so we thought, you know, we all thought that maybe there was a chance that we you know, was going to get some time here. But all three of you miss out on that. And it's, it's a micro criticism because, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, I don't want to sound like somebody who, who's tough on the Tiktokalio era because. Boy, what we wouldn't give for some of that right now. I mean, I didn't agree with his politics, but he might not agree with my politics. You know, it's 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 a hard one, but it's one that ultimately I'm a football fan, and doesn't matter who's in charge, who owns the club, whatever. I'm a Swindon fan, so um, it was it was it was magnificent. So I don't want people to think that I'm listening to go and he's talking about that bloody Macclesfield game again because it's it's I'm also a big fan of getting players through the youth system and in and getting minutes and those are the sort of games where I think youngsters thrive because it's you're singing for your supper but it's, it's one of those things but to get back on track this time in your career starts to get you noticed by England what a phrase it doesn't matter what age group it is England are watching you and you are brought into the England under 19 setup. It must have been the icing on your cake. No, no one, not everybody can win an FA Cup final or a Champions League or a World Cup. But sometimes just that international recognition, you, no one can take that away from you. It, it all come about very quickly. Obviously, 
it was surreal it was I think originally I was on like a reserve list and a couple of people got injured and luckily enough I was next on the list or you know high up on the list enough to to be called up and I think looking back I regret Mm. not taking it in a lot more maybe not that I thought it was going to happen a lot but I think as a young kid you don't really appreciate what it is until I till I see the England cap or me playing in the strip and wearing the number nine shirt for England I think I think it's something that I've, I've took for granted and um I didn't really appreciate as much as what I should have and okay so you don't remember it but there is a question that I've asked Brian Howard um and anybody and Reese Evans as well and they play this so cool this question because you know they're not really that bothered but my question to you is do you know where your England cap is Absolutely, I'm going to say boring, but absolutely, it's in my uh, parents' house, all in a glass absolutely. box with a shirt and that. My uh, my dad worked his way out to get it, to be honest with you. For a while, I didn't hear mm. anything about getting one, and it was up to my dad to email the FA and all that kind of thing, but it took a while to arrive. But, you know, I don't go home very often at the minute, but when I go home to my parents' house, um, you know, I'm immensely proud of it, and it's something that I always look at, because it's, it's as you go up in the stairs and it's there, and... Everyone who comes to the house comments on it, so it's you know it's. it's... And what you're saying is, you get the step ladder, you bring it down, you take it out of the uh, the framing, and you wear it for about two hours. Yeah, just stick it <laughs> exactly on. Exactly right, and I would do yeah. exactly the same. <laughs> Swindon now and everything seems to explode for you but in a good way the local press has given you significant praise and coverage during this time while many fans they really really do start seeing you rightly or wrongly as the next big thing and all the while Decanio seems to be frantically playing all of this down in fact you seem to get less minutes before the injuries kick in was it hard for you to stay on your feet at this stage or because you're so highly regarded and talked about, um, do you lose your head a little bit? Um, no, I don't think. I think obviously at the time it was a little. Maybe it's a little bit over the top. Mm. Uh, I think. I think I had a four-page spread called "What's the Story, Swindon Glory" or something like that. And uh, you know, it's four-page spread. And to be honest with you, I hadn't really done a shot in the game. I hadn't done anything. I, you know, I'd scored a couple of goals against Villa and uh, got me England call up. But I understood that. Um, even though I was, you know, as a young kid, it was it was a big achievement for myself, and mm. it was a big achievement for the club in terms of um, you know the players that they developed. Obviously, it looks good on the club, it looks good on Bodes, it looks good on um, everyone at the club for for someone to be playing for England. Um, so, you know, I don't think the Canio ever let me uh, my feet leave the floor, um, which obviously I didn't play a lot after that game. Um, you know, I was in no danger of flying off and, and being big time. Um, you know, he just wouldn't allow it. And I can kind of understand why it angered him a little bit because he probably wanted mm. to nurture me in a way, um, in his way. And, um, you know, he couldn't really do that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what the best way to deal with your um, your your exploits at that stage. Do you, do you get more games and then suddenly you're scoring more goals or do you just take a step back? You're a first-year pro, so... Just, you know, stay grounded, you'll get your chance. And he goes with the latter. And in the later stages of the Canio era, you get half hour, 20 minutes here and there, and you fade in. But he brings you back for the very final game that he played. Um, 
you, you haven't been on the bench since December before that, but you come on as a late sub against Hartlepool, which is his final game. Um, did it feel like the end was coming internally? It certainly felt that way as a fan, but were you all prepared for the end at that point? Uh, to, be, to be perfectly honest, no. From, from our point of view, it happened all very quickly. Uh, obviously, um, Matty Ritchie got sold. Um, it kind of felt like it was... Well, he saw it as it was under, you know, behind his back kind of thing. And um, Matty was a big part of De, uh, De plans. He was his, he was his main man, and um, you know, he, he basically built the team around Matty. And I think that you know, it was kind of like, well, if you're going to start doing that, then uh, you know, I'm off. But um, he, he obviously it, it happened, and um, you know, we couldn't change that. But we had a game at Tranmere, um, which the mm-hmm. assistant took. Um, and I had a I had a bit of a hamstring tear. Um, I can't remember if it was before the Hartlepool game or, or what, but I had a bit of a hamstring tear, and I was out for sort of two or three weeks. Uh, and I had a little I had a scan, and I looked I had a little hole in the middle of my hamstring, like a one centimetre hole. And um, you know, some of that happens to quicker players when we're sprinting a lot. Um, but um, we went up to Tranmere, and um, I felt all right in terms of my body and stuff, but. Obviously, the pre the pre match meal got cancelled, which I'm sure you've heard about. Um, so the boys got you know paninis and Costa coffees and that. Um, but I started the game, which I thought was completely random. So whether whether um, it, the assistant had been told to 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 play me or you know play a weekend side, I'm not sure. I don't think he'd do that because uh, he loves Swindon, the Canio. But um, you know, I started the game and I was doing well. Um, I was causing problems and. I remember running a channel, um, you know, like I did, and it basically felt like I got shot by a double barrel from about two yards away. The back of my hamstring was just um, completely tore. Um, I had a 20 centimetre tear when I got the scan, um, you know, and it's right down the middle of the muscle, all the way from the sort of knee, pretty much to the, you know, the top of the top of the glute and stuff. So that was a big setback, and um, some of that probably could have been avoided, maybe if I didn't start that game and had another week in training, it wouldn't have happened, yeah. but we just never know, really. You say that De Canio loves Wyndham. Uh, do you think he might have left a bit too prematurely? Do you, do you think he, he, he should have stayed, or do you reckon that financially or whatever behind the scenes was going on, it was it, it just simply couldn't have happened? Yeah, I mean, we was in a great position for the rest of the season, and, you know... Ultimately, I think we would have we would have probably been promoted because he was on such a such a good yeah. sort of forward momentum. So, so you know, made but he obviously decided that weren't meant to be. And you know, for myself, he was my first manager, but you know, I love to work with him. It was tough. I mean, we went through stages where we had like eight nine weeks of that day off because he was in Sundays kicking walls and watching videos. But you know, he gave me an, another sense of confidence because um, he wanted me in and around it. And passion for football was you know it was unrivaled really. It was you know he worked the balls off us, but he got his results. And like we said, we he was in a prime position to go on and, and get promoted. But just you know, it all fizzled out kind of thing. As you mentioned, your injuries. In hindsight, it couldn't have happened at a worse time because new manager comes in and Kevin MacDonald and your sideline, there's nothing you can do. How tough, and it doesn't need to be necessarily this spell, but how tough are these frustrations mentally when 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 you're injured? Is it tempting to rush coming back early or do you just know that you've just got to sit out and hope? Obviously, I was really careful with this one because I rushed to come back after the original one, so I did everything... I did everything right. I mean, if you really want to, you can force your way back 
um, you know, over the top of the physio, really. But uh, I listened to everything he said. I was doing like training at, I forget what it's called there, but it was like this uh, equestrian centre that had a, a treadmill that meant you could run at like 50% body weight. And I did everything right after I did my hamstring properly. And um, it meant that I was out for a long period of time, really, which meant that, you know, I didn't really have much interaction with Kevin McDonald or, or Coops um, because I was injured, really. You know, they were trying to, you know, keep us in the hunt for promotion and I was injured, so I couldn't really help out. And, you know, that was, that was it, really. It was tough. So you had very little interaction with Kevin McDonald? The only real interaction I had with him was, obviously, the lad said he was brilliant because he, you know, he developed young players and stuff. And Coops was, was good as well. His training was, was top drawer and... The lads were really enjoying it. But I remember coming back to training for a couple of weeks, maybe. And I did a bit of press or, you know, something to that degree or a bit for the programme or something like that. And I said something like, I'm fit or I'm ready or some stupid, naive comment that I'd never say at my age now. Um, and he pulled me in the office and uh, he said that I'd put him in the, under pressure to play me because of, you know, how highly the Swindon fans thought of me at the time. And, you know, looking back... It, it is a silly thing to say. Maybe I shouldn't have said I was ready, and you know, uh, he put me on the bench the last, you know, the, the playoff games. Basically, imagine the if it, if it's to the advertiser, I can understand, but if it's in house, I imagine the media guys would have got a bit of a, a kick in from McDonald if that was the case because they published it. So you, out of the blue, you're back for the playoffs. Um, you don't have much interaction with, with Kevin McDonald, but you're an unused sub for the home game where Swindon somehow don't come out of it with the win. We absolutely deserved it. Late penalty uh, ruined our afternoon. And then we have to go to Griffin Park needing a win. And it's a hell of a game. I didn't watch it. I was on my stag in Hamburg, but I was getting updates at the time, an absolutely insane game of football. Brentford know how to do playoff or drama at the end of the season, and this is no different. Swindon fall behind through Rooney, scoring an own goal, and then it's 2 0. Clayton Donaldson, it's done. Rooney then scores just before half time, 2 1 half time. Okay, fine. But then Donaldson scores again, 3 1 down. It's looking dead and buried. De Vera, just uh, with over a half hour to go scores and then you're brought on at that stage um you're brought on um with about 13 15 minutes left and it's all swindon from from my memory and flint gets that last gasp equalizer regardless of what happens after must have been bloody lovely being on the pitch at that point yeah i mean uh brentford's yeah. a, a tough place to go like everything's like on top of each other like uh it feels like the stands right up against the touchline and he obviously scores the goal and yeah you know Flintie was unreal in the air and he's such a threat from from set pieces and it weren't a surprise really that he was on the end of it but it was a it was a great feeling and uh, good to be on the pitch at that point i wish they took me off straight after but uh it was <laughs> it was good to be did, good to be part of it did did you did were you surprised to be in the playoff squad uh, a little bit, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, obviously, I'd missed missed a lot of football, and um, I don't really know why I was in the. T- I don't know if there was some injuries or, or what. But obviously, coming back from an injury, whether he'd, the manager and Coops had been told that you know I was a young prospect or, or what. Um, you know, I, I was there and I was involved, and I was yeah. delighted to be back because I, it felt like such a long road. I know it weren't that long in my hamstring, um, but it felt like a long road in my first real injury. <laughs> it goes to penalties. And everybody scores, sadly, 
you are the one that misses. It's saved. It's the fourth penalty that Swindon take, and we lose. One of those things, there was definitely no backlash from the fans. My memories at the time was, why on earth is a first a first season pro taking that I don't usually I don't care about their position um, I just feel that it's a high pressure moment and and it, it it just to me when you've got people like McCormack and Ward and Luongo I think was on the pitch do you think you should have taken a penalty or did you want to take a penalty I'm sure I'm sure you was delighted obviously when uh, he was in Hamburg and he said I was stepping up but I, I didn't want to take one to be honest with you the fans have been great with me ever since but you know I didn't even take penalties in the youth team we always let the, the, the defenders or people who didn't score goals take the penalties and so I never really took them uh, I never really practiced them I actually <laughs> I, I had been practicing but I actually missed one up here for Partick a few months back which is my first one in game since the playoff final, uh, playoff semi-final you know I couldn't really remember who took them for us um, but we were, we were yeah. struggling for takers so I pretty much kept them on that day and at the back of the pack um, but then Wardy and I don't know if it was Wardy or Alan McCormack not sure they you know they said that they thought it was the responsibility of the attacking players and I was yeah. I was an attacking player at the time so I got at, I got asked and to be honest with you I should I should have yeah. shouted off and said no but I didn't and you know what happened happened but Looking back, I was a bit annoyed that I was up fourth because although it would have still been pressure, first or second is not such a crucial stage in the penalty shootout. You know, when I took it, it was uh, it was a real crucial penalty, and of course, everyone took one. It, it's it's a very good point, and I'm looking at the the order now, and I can see why they've done it. If anything. I agree that you should have been first or second, but I think third would have been the most logical. And I'll tell you why. So the first person for talent steps up is De Vera, so a defender. Then Flint takes one. So you can see they're going through the, the well, I imagine they're the punts. They're the ones like, these guys have said they'll take one. So Because we've lost Byrne in the game. Um, we've we've taken off Rooney and Williams. So, you know, there's two forwards that, that, that would have been high stakes to, to score. And then Collins takes one. So I may may have put you, if we're going in order of, of priority on basis of position, I may have put you in at three. But that's still much, much less pressure than four. Fourth is a high-pressure penalty. No, uh, there's no doubt about that because Roberts is is our penalty taker in that, so he's taken the fifth. So I, I, I see the logic in it, but I mean, I've, I I I'm one of those football fans when anybody walks up, I'm the one that goes, oh, he's bloody missed it, you know, oh, he's missed it, he's missed it. So I, I probably, if I was watching it, I would be watching every every one going, well, he's going to miss, and then say, I bloody knew he'd score, uh, you know. Um, so I'm one of those fans. It, it's it's such a tough thing to to experience at such a, such a young age because. Swindon had the squads to get through. Yeah, we had the wobble, um, but we still had De Canio's legacy there. And it, I think it was Yeovil in the final. It was up for grabs. We probably would have lost the bloody final because we've been choking at Wembley since, <laughs> since the new one was built. But it just seems it seems so close. And I, I realise now I'm bigging all this up and you're probably sat there going, all right, mate, lay off. I've agreed to do this podcast. Leave me alone, man. It's <laughs> but but it, it just... It's the worst way, isn't it, to uh, to not progress? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And like you said, the squad was that good that I think as soon as Flinty scored scored the, the equaliser, it was like, right, we're going to go up now. Do you know what I mean? And I think you know we'd have probably we'd have probably beaten Yeovil. Like you said, we had a good yeah, we had a good record against them and stuff. And 
uh, yeah, penalties, it's a lottery in it, but you know, Brentford's a, it's a hard place to go and in terms of the atmosphere and that, maybe I'll let it get to me and, you know, but I think I'd struggle, even now, I think mm-hmm. I'd struggle to step up in a penalty shootout and I think it's really impacted, you know, that side of it and obviously I took one up here in the game, like I said, and missed that one as well, but it's two 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 saves, so uh, I'm probably off them for a while now, but um, no, it's, it's, a, it's a crap way to go out and, um, <laughs> okay, so how long how long did it did it take to recover from that? Because after that, it's summer holidays. So are you are you sat on the beach with all your ex uh, youth scholars on on a holiday down to Greece or Spain, and they're just saying lighten up, mate, it, it'll get better? Or, uh, or was it was it was it tough to recover? No, it was tough. You know, it took me a long time to get over it. Really, I can't really remember at the time if he was doing that voting throughs on the cover of Swindon's. FIFA. I don't know if that was the season after, but um, I think I think I did some kind of interview saying where I like I need to pay the you know pay the fans back and but I had a lot of sleepless nights to be honest with you because I just felt like um, you know the clubs the clubs chances of playing Championship football you know it it all come down to me and like one spot kick and you know so it felt like a big it felt like a big you know, a big thing that I need to get over. And it... Pre-season 2013 is a completely different beast to what you experienced the year before under the Decanio. We've got new owners now. The money is gone and McDonald's leaves very, very quickly. Was that a surprise as much as it was for us as fans? Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, um, he guided us to the playoff places, but obviously yeah, I had a big help from the fact that we were first. But, you know, it definitely seemed like, uh, it seemed like a, a surprise. But... Uh, obviously, Coop's got the job, and that was good really for the lads because it was it was familiar, and he was a very good coach, and obviously he turned into a very good manager for Swindon. But that's really when I noticed that the club, maybe it was to do with money or, or what, but I noticed that the club went from sort of an old school dressing room in terms of experienced pros earning a lot of money to to new school, and it was about you know young kids and. Um, developing players a lot more and that kind of thing. So I noticed that shift as so well. Why isn't that Miles Story getting lots of games that year with that shift? That shift exists, but we're bringing in the loanies. So we're bringing in the guys from mm. Spurs. They sign on permanence, and then we've mm. got Pritchard as well. Surely there's a place for Miles Story at that yeah. stage. I think um, the football that um, Coops and ultimately Luke Williams brought in was it was total total soccer kind of thing. It was. It was unheard of, really, in terms of you know for, for lower down the leagues, and it was unbelievable to watch. Obviously, I watched a lot of it. <laughs> now, you know, I struggle for game time. I don't know if I maybe fit into the system that they were trying to do at the time. Obviously, my game was a little bit more about um, you know chasing channels and and being a threat that way and running in behind. And the football we played was was unbelievable, really. Um, so maybe I just didn't really fit at that time. Richie, he's hit it and he's deflected and Swindon Town have the lead. It takes you a while to get going that season. Um, you spend a month at Salisbury, who at that stage were in the National League, so they are Tier 5. Did, did, you, did you want that move? It seems to me that surely you could have got a, a, a league gig at that stage. I was struggling for game time, obviously, as we said. Uh, and Coops put, called me into the office and said that you know Salisbury want to take me on loan for a month. Uh, and he was good as gold, really. He told me to go and you know get some minutes and more experience. Um, and I hadn't really, even though I'd, I'd done well sort of in my career, I hadn't really started a lot of games. Um, so I was keen to go and get some experience. 
with a with a professional club and but the only thing was although although obviously it was all in the pipeline that I was going to go and stuff um, I got a, mm. quite a serious dead leg right before I went and I had to see our physio about it um, and I'd been suffering for it for like a week or whatever and he thought that um, I'd benefit from getting like injected mm. into the dead leg so it would basically break up um, whatever was sort of clotting in and around the muscle and relieve the pain kind of thing but I remember the day after he said do you feel better and I basically point blank line and said oh yeah tips off but I didn't I could barely move so I went to Salisbury pretty much like half cocked and um, I really struggled to get about the pitch, um, which is obviously what I rely on most when I play. I'm dynamic, I'm an athlete mm-hmm. and I just couldn't do it. Um, I think I got an assist in my first game, but in terms of from then on, my my leg just got worse and worse. And so it weren't it weren't really as positive as an experience mm-hmm. as what it should have been. And I had a good manager at the time that was there, Mikey Harris, who I ended up meeting down at Portsmouth, who was the academy manager. But... Um, I didn't really get the benefit from, yeah. and then and then Shrewsbury followed after that. Yeah, I mean, I come back to Swindon, and um, basically what what happened with my thighs for like a month, I had like this fluid that was injected into it. It was just sitting there, and it was so uncomfortable, and my thigh was massive. And eventually, we decided to get it drained. So I got it drained and like tissue massage and all that kind of thing. And after a couple mm. of weeks, I felt brand new. I was back, and I went training with, with Swindon for a while, and. Um, Coops just said to me again he just pulled me in the office he was brilliant about it he just said you know go to Shrewsbury for a month in League One and play and being from Wolverhampton really it was a well Wolverhampton area it was it was a no-brainer um, obviously I live at home with my family and stuff um, and really I, you know at this point I had no no sort of fears that my career was going to be anywhere else but Swindon it was just sort of using it to uh, develop myself and I played well at Shrewsbury but I don't I didn't score um you know, but I, you know, I played Wolves were in League One at that time, so my highlight really for for Shrewsbury playing at the Molyneux. Um, yeah, yeah, got a point nil nil. No. Not a lot of people got no, points against Wolves that year. No. So um, my highlight really was playing at Wolves uh, at the Molyneux. Started the game, played ninety minutes. Uh, I actually like put one right in the stanch, and Carla Keane plucked ah. it from the top corner. Um, but it was down the end that all my mates were sitting in um, in the south bank where I used to sit. So. That was a great moment for my family as well. So I think I got more experience out of that, um, although I didn't really get the stats I was looking for in terms of goals. It's pretty much your, your, your first game back at Swindon. You come on as a late sub against, again, a former club in Coventry. It's a decent game with added spice because one of uh, our friends, Leon Clark, was playing for City then and he opens the scoring. Clark, obviously famous for, for that uh, little tiff he had with Paolo. Um, Yasser gets the equaliser and then... In comes yourself, shrugging off Dan Seaborn nonchalantly to dink it over Joe Murphy. Lovely. Yeah, it was, um, you know, first of all, you know, it felt good to be back at Swindon. Um, you know, obviously I enjoyed my time at Shrewsbury, but my club was Swindon. Um, it's where I've been for years. And um, I think if you look at the if you look at the goal, obviously you said I was shrugging centre-halves off and that. But, you know, hats off to, to Coops at the time. Maybe I wouldn't have done that if I wouldn't have gone to Salisbury and played in the conference or played a few games for Shrewsbury and got used to playing, you know, proper men's football because, like I said, I didn't play a lot of games before those loans in terms of starting. So, you know, I come on in that game and it was kind of like move out of the way. I'm going to get on the end of this. And I think Range flicks it on. And yeah, it, it was it was a great... And obviously it was against Coventry, which was, for me, being released from there was an added sort of bonus. And one of the lads that was in my team at the time when I was at Coventry came up to me after and asked how I was and that. But is it is it nice as a footballer to go to former clubs and get one over them? Yeah, I think so. Um, 
for, for me personally, the, mm. the Coventry thing was massive. Playing against Wolves for Shrewsbury, if I'd have scored against Wolves, no one at Wolves would have probably remembered me, so it wouldn't have really meant a lot. But for me personally, scoring against Coventry was brilliant because I never really got a decent stretch of form there and they never really saw the real me to so do that against Coventry. So if you scored against Swindon, would you celebrate? I'm not just saying, I'm not sure I would because obviously... Bit, Swindon quickly become like home for me and I, I ended up growing up there you know to be there from 16 until uh, and I was out on loan a fair bit but I, I was there a good number of years and uh, I don't think I would like I said earlier it was, it was a bit different with Coventry because it was like a, I was like a flash in a pan there and it's very nice to hear you say that I think if I didn't support a club as a child and so I played for someone for a couple of years it's a bit different because this is the team that gave you the opportunity to be a pro footballer um, but I think I would do a I'd still I wouldn't give it the big one but I think I'd still at least fist pump um, even Billy Bowden did the shush sign when he scored a winner against Swindon and I've never really I hope to talk to him because I've never really forgiven him for that because I don't think we were given him much stick that was at Bristol Rovers but it is one of those things it's an odd thing these days I know it's always been around but some players don't have to take it a bit too seriously when they stay still almost like apologizing I hate that I want at least run and sort of congratulate you know your pals like you've taken a wicket in cricket or something not just walk back and make a point of going no guys I'm devastated to score this goal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely hate that. I think it's even worse if you do that because then it's like you you're letting everyone know that you was already there and it's probably there that exactly and and, and you're you're annoying you're, you're annoying the fans in, in for the team you play for as well. It's just like oh, oh, that's just my opinion anyway. And um, <laughs> you score a winning goal at Tramier. That was a cross, wasn't it? Hundred percent across, but I'll take it because you know it was it was the first time I went back to Tramier after doing my hamstring and you know I don't I don't really remember where I played in that game but um I, for some reason I was on the right and I managed to pff, it went in I went I was at Aberdeen afterwards with one of the lads and he, he even said to me I said I remember that game you scored the cross so uh now it was a cross what turned out to be your final goal for the club was another nice finish this time in a 2-1 win against Sheffield United at the county ground my god we used to beat some big teams it left it left at that time we're still very much in the playoff picture as well. We're one off the playoffs in positions-wise anyway. Um, and then we just fall apart nearer to the end. I think that side underachieved. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Like you said, the, the Sheffield United game was, was another good game. It was a good game for the graduates. I think Louis Thompson yeah. got his first goal today. So, you know, for me and him to score in the game. And then, like you said, we was right on for, for, for promotion. And it just, like, it just fizzled out. And... Um, Obviously, the team did well the following season to get back up there, but you know maybe the team did kind of underachieve a little bit. So at, at the end of this season, is there any point that there are indications that suggest that you are going to be no longer required at Swindon? Uh, not really, to be honest. Um, you know, it was still very much you know I'm a Swindon player and uh, I was playing fairly regularly. Obviously, I, you know the the two games at Tranmere and Sheffield United and coming on at Coventry and it was it was a fairly decent time in my career. Like I said earlier. The club developed me from and took me in from a 16-year-old, and uh, I was playing for him. And I wasn't playing regularly, but I was playing for the club. And you know, it never really crossed my mind that that, that maybe that was going to be the last sort of time I'd play. 
you play with a lot of attack-minded teammates during that time. You play with Billy Bowden, Connell, Karouche, Davita, Benson, Williams, Collins, Martin. This is over two years. Uh, Rooney, Nile Ranger, Nikki Jose, Connor Walden, Michael Smith. Who did you enjoy playing alongside? Well, obviously, the early days when I first started training was like um, mm-hmm. Charlie was there. He was just the perfect poacher, perfect striker. JP McGovern was class on his day. I still see him like in and around Glasgow up now, but he was decent at the time. Paul Benson, for me, it, the way I like to play was obviously the perfect foil. Uh, Andy Williams, obviously, was was basically me, but older and wiser. But he was, you know, he was rapid. He'd probably mm-hmm. give me a decent run for my money. And then, obviously, when the new school of players come through, like I said, in terms of like the younger players, you know, Mason, Ryan Mason, and Pritchard were all technically unbelievable. Ben Gladwin was obviously come from lower league, and he was honestly mm-hmm. technically frightening. Nathan Byrne was, you know, he was some boy and he was he was a great player and all. And uh, obviously, you've still got Wes. Everyone forgets the keeper, but Wes Wes yeah. was unbeatable, unbeatable on his day. And Nile Ranger. Had yeah, what was Nile Ranger like? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a bit annoying for anyone that knows Nile, right? Because he gets a bad rep. But he was brilliant off the pitch and in and around the dressing room, and he was so funny to like interact with. But Fair enough, like, his timekeeping was poor, but some of the decisions he made off the pitch let him down, but on his day, you know, I think he was unplayable in any league he would have played in, and I was buzzing to see him at Southend doing so well. I watched him I watched him on his Instagram a few times, and he was doing ridiculous stuff and scoring goals, and it's a shame that he's kind of seemed to have fell out a bit again. He was an absolute pro when he was at Swindon. I don't think he even got booked when he, when he, was, when he played. It was just all the behind-the-scenes stuff. A little bit of space for Frank McAvenny. Away from Parker. Not from Bruce, though. Nyholt with a shot, took a deflection, it's in! Luke Nyholt has equalised for Swindon Town. And bottom of the table they may be, but they are made of stern stuff. Okay, so... The end is near for you, but there's still a whole season where you're a Swindon player, but you're out on loan. So you spend all of that playoff season where we lose at Preston. Um, you spend the first half at Portsmouth and the second half at Newport. Two totally different teams in the same division. Um, although frustrated that your time at Swindon's clearly coming to an end, it must be great to get the, uh, the Portsmouth gig. Yeah, come out of the blue. Obviously, that sounds like I'm making a pun up, but no, it come out of the blue. Um, there were obviously there, the manager Andy Orford was really keen on me from the start of the summer, so it was a massive compliment. Really, obviously, once I eventually got there, they had a, quite a few strikers uh, that they'd bought in in the summer. There's quite a big turnover of players and stuff, and but I had to wait my turn. And but to be honest with you, you know, yeah. eighteen thousand playing at Fratton Park, the bench weren't too bad. Um, but you know, I played. Ultimately, um, I didn't play as much as what I would have liked for a loan, but the fans there seemed to love me. I ended up scoring three, three of three goals or something like that, but they were all great goals and there was all match winners and there was all at home. And I had a couple of games on the wing where I got a couple of assists and man of the matches. So the, the fans really liked, liked me and took me to be there. But I think Andy Orford, when he basically let me go back to Swindon uh, six months early, was he was under pressure because you know Portsmouth was was and still is a massive club and um we weren't really anywhere near sort of getting and you know promoted or anything like that so i think he was under pressure and he brought in a bit more experience and stuff so 
Uh, obviously, I ended up pretty much going straight to Newport from from Portsmouth, give or take a week with Swindon. Like you say, it was a different experience. Um, the home pitches, you know, half rug, half the time it's being played as a rugby uh, rugby stadium, but it's a good club uh, and I gained more, you know, great experience there. Played a lot of games, scored a couple of goals. Uh, you know, it's good to see him doing so well at the minute in the cups. I feel like every time I turn the telly on, they're beating someone from the championship in the cup, but. Uh, you know, great people in and around the place as well. And the manager now was uh, was a player at the time. And, um, you know, it's good to see them doing so well. Were you aware of the disappointment that many fans had between, in regards to the downfall of your career at Swindon? You had a very, very loud support from from the fans. Were you aware of that at the time? Yeah, I think yeah, I, think I was, obviously. Uh, the, the thing, the thing was, the, the fans, fans at Swindon, obviously didn't see me a lot. But when I seemed to mm. play, I seemed to do well, um, which is obviously you know the Stevenage, Aston Villa, coming back from loan and the Coventry game, and then Tranmere scoring across whatever. But um, Sheffield United, and every time I seemed to play for Swindon, I seemed to do well. Um, but then I'd, I'd go long spells without playing, so I can never really say that. You know, if I was to play every week, that I'd still be there now and like mm. scoring goals every week. But I never really started as many games at Swindon, regardless of who the manager, than what I would have wanted. So, I think the fans always saw that when I did play, I ended up doing something well. So I kind of had like a a following that probably wasn't really deserved from the fans. But yeah, I could I could see the frustration. Yeah, you come back briefly in 2015. From our side of things as fans, it seemed like a very awkward time because it was clear that for whatever reason, for the style of play that Luke Williams and Mark Cooper, Mark Cooper and, Mark, um, and Luke Williams are doing, you're not a part of that. But because of the sh- centre-forward shortage, there's only Michael Smith, you come back for two or three games. How hard is it to stay professional at that stage and instead of just saying, look, let's quit messing around, just let me go to where I need to go? I mean, that pre-season, it was quite obvious that I weren't going to be in the picture, really, in terms of being at town. It was a different brand of football, like we said before. But, you know, maybe I didn't really fit into that. And maybe that was the reason. But it was great to watch and it was pleasing, obviously, for the fans, you know, to watch that style of football. I think that pre-season, I ended up training with the youth team quite a bit because, you know, Coops and Luke basically knew that I was going to be looking to go out on loan again. So they couldn't really maybe plan around me being there. So I trained the youth team a fair bit and then obviously the, the loan to Inverness come about and that, that was sort of the beginning of the end. But you have a great season at Inverness. Um, it must have been great to be a first-choice player, scoring goals, going to places like Celtic Park and Pataudry and just really being able to be a footballer. To be honest with you, at the time when my agent mentioned it, I was kind of, I was kind of dead against going. My agent... A lot of the time said that, you know, a loan up to Scotland would be good because, you know, there's a lot of games that are on TV. There's a lot of coverage. There's a lot of people in Scotland that go to the games in terms yeah. of attendances and that. So, but obviously Inverness is a long way away. Um, <laughs> it's right at the top. So, but there wasn't too many options in terms of league clubs that wanted to take me on loan. So I kind of, I went up there to train for a little bit to see, it, you know, whether I could do it in terms of, you know, being up there. And uh, I remember me and this guy called Toby Show Silva went up there and trained and we were both coming the same day we were both strikers both quick exactly the same player pretty much and he got signed like day two and uh i was in there like this was on the on the tuesday he got signed and on the friday i still hadn't heard anything 
So it was kind of like I went into the office and said, basically, what's going on? Um, you know, are you going to take me on loan or I'm up here training? What, what's really going on? And uh, the manager at the time was John Hughes and he had a massive impact on me looking back and he was just a funny guy. He, he basically, uh, he said, well, you know, do you want to sign on loan? And I said, but do you want me to sign on loan? Do you know what I mean? Uh, so had, and then he just started laughing and said, yeah, we do. And I was like, right, OK. So that was the Friday and it obviously all got sorted out and we were playing. I can't remember. I can't remember when we played. We played against Hearts. It was on BT Sport and that was my first game and I started and um, yeah, I managed to score like 90th minute or something and we won the game 2-1 and uh, I kind of just went from there really. It was it was good to be first choice at a club. I played every week up front on my own a lot of the time, which was a new role for me because I normally play with a partner. But he was, you know, John Hughes was brilliant with me. He was he was very demanding though. I, he used to keep coming out in the press and saying it. Well, he scores one goal a game. He thinks his job's done and all that. But um, no, it was it was a good time and I enjoyed I enjoyed working with the manager and except for we played Sterling Albion once in the in the cup and. I thought, Christ, like we're playing, <laughs> where we're playing here, this is horrendous. Uh, and we actually drew the game nil-nil. And on the Monday, he called me in the office and uh, he said, uh, take a seat. So I took a seat and uh, he said, I just want to let you know that that was the worst performance by any striker in the history of this club since 1994. And uh, and I was I was about to just like, answer, like say something and he just started laughing and said, right, get out. Literally sat me down for like five seconds said that and to get it. that's what he was like he was brilliant he was good to me and um i enjoyed like obviously a very good time up there it was a good league um like you said earlier obviously you get to parkhead and play in front of fifty thousand people hibs hearts aberdeen all these big big teams and um yeah i mean i'm, I'm a big advocate for scottish football i mean my, my stepdad's an aberdeen fan my my cousin is, is a hibs fan i've got family in Edinburgh so I, I keep quite a close eye and you get your 11 goals and 30 odd appearances and I mean that earns you your Aberdeen deal um, which is an incredibly big in my mind in my house that's a big club great history that really must have been great to have be given that that opportunity yeah I mean it come about sort of towards the end of the season McInnes phoned my agent Derek McInnes and said that um, he was interested in taking me so I but basically, basically, the way it was working was I was at Inverness and Swindon were getting basically double my wages for for, for me to be there. And uh, once I spoke to Derek McInnes, it was a, it was kind of like, well, you can come here and and triple your wages that you're on now. Albeit it wasn't, you know, it wasn't great what I was on at Swindon, and you can play Europa League football, which. I was thinking, all right, here we go. I'm on the way up here, but you know, I was proud to to be to be playing at that kind of. A level that a team in the Europa League would would take me, and um, you know, like you said at, at the time, Aberdeen had finished third, uh, sorry, finished second three times in a row. Um, so they were the big guns in the in the Prem alongside Celtic because Rangers hadn't come up yet. Yeah, I mean, you only have the one season. You do get your European football. Um, you don't get as much time um, in your, in the beginning of your second season. I think you score a goal and then you're pretty much sold uh, or le- allowed to join Partick Thistle. Takes you down to Glasgow, which is nice. I'm sure Wes Fodring was like, are you kidding me? Is this kid's back back on my doorstep after all these years? You've also got Cy Ferry around. And how are you finding life in Glasgow? Yeah, well, originally the Aberdeen thing, um, mm. I was a bit disappointed with the way that sort of played out because... Um, uh, basically, Aberdeen come back to pre-season like the start of June, which is unheard of in England. It's normally the end of June, start of July. 
Uh, so my contract didn't start really until the end of June. Uh, so I was kind of on the back foot straight away. And I, I, like, I never really played a lot. I started the first two league games and scored in one and then never started a game since. So I don't think I really adapted that well to, to playing for a big club. And Aberdeen was a big club playing in Europe. And I think I should have done a lot better than what I did. I was looking to get you know to another Scottish Premier League club and have another crack at it. But you know when I left for that pre-season that I was there at Aberdeen in my second year. I had a great pre-season. I was flying, but I knew I was leaving kind of thing. So I come back like raring to go. Like I was really fit. I played left mid and in the pre-season game, scored a couple of goals, set a couple of goals up. We played against like Doncaster in pre-season. I ran the show and obviously Darren Ferguson, Alex Ferguson was there watching and stuff. And I was in line to start in the Europa League, my, my first start in the Europa League in that season. But all the time in the back of my mind, I was thinking, mm. well, I'm going to be leaving. But on that day of the game, Gary McCoy Stephen was signed uh, and basically he started mm. and I was on my way out again. But now, you know, I signed for Partick and, um, you know, we suffered, we suffered a little bit earlier on. It's a great club. We suffered a little bit early on in the season uh, last year and I managed to score my first goal coming off the bench against Dundee and we won 2-1. And then we drew against Hamilton. Then I scored again against St Johnston. So we got like seven points in a week. But ultimately, we never really got any form together because that league, Scotland's tough when you go from playing an, a winnable fixture, if you want to say, uh, to playing you know Celtic away, Aberdeen away, Rangers at home. So you've got three games that ultimately you're going to get spanked in. You know, not win or, uh, and then you've got to play against a team that really you should beat. Um, so we never really picked up any form um, and obviously we ended up getting relegated and we struggled this year to begin with but we, you know, we're unbeaten now since 2019 and um, we've won four on the bounce in the quarterfinals of the Scottish Cup and uh, I just need to score a few more goals and get back to back to what I was doing and um, you know things will be good but Glasgow is a brilliant city uh, you know I've enjoyed my time in Scotland. Do Partick Thistle still have that petrifying mascot? Kingsley's name is got the most random name for a, for an explosion <laughs> I've ever seen. So you're only 25 miles what's 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 the hopes for you for your future in the game? I mean I'm out of contract in the summer I'm, I'm unsure really what the summer's going to bring I think really I need to get back to my goal scoring that's what I used to do best and even at my times of Swindon, like I said, I didn't play a lot, but I'd, I'd always come up with, you know, some some decent. And I think, you know, I want to I want to forge a decent career. And like you said, I'm still young, and I want to stay in the game as long as possible because, you know, I've got mates. Obviously, you know, I'm close with Bedders and Aaron, and I want to stay in the professional game for as long as I can because it's it's the best job in the world. And it, I mean, it it didn't end the greatest at Swindon for whatever reasons, but. It's the first club you played for as as a professional. What when you when you close your eyes and think of Swindon, what are the fondest memories? Um, obviously, obviously the Aston Villa game sticks out in the Canio era. But pre-season we had in Portugal when we had that little sort of link with Spurs. Um, I remember doing a finishing session with Les Ferdinand, and it was me, Andy Williams, and Harry Kane. <laughs> Absolute mic drop, I know, but. Um, now that that was obviously sticks out. We played against Tottenham at the county ground, and it was Gareth Bale's last game uh, for Spurs before he got bought for five hundred <laughs> billion or whatever he got bought for. Um, and he scored a screamer, and he, him and Carl Walker were playing on the right hand side, and I was playing left wing. That that was a big. I enjoyed that, and then obviously 
the youth team. Everyone talks about a youth team, but I met some great people and three of my best mates now, Aaron Bedders and Mark Francis. And But also, you know, living in digs in Swindon was brilliant. Trevor and Dawn Giles really looked after me and, you know, gave my family a bit of confidence that when I was living away from home. So, you know, I owe them a lot as well. So, you know, I look back at my time, you know, I'm quite proud and, um, you know. My, my final question, because this has been an absolute monster episode and I thank you for it and I hope the guys that are listening to this enjoy um, listen to it as much as I did. The final question is, how often does Cy Ferry try and get free tickets from you? <laughs> Do you know what? It's in within once because he, he plays for uh, okay. he plays for Peter Ed up here. So uh, he actually texted me a couple of weeks back asking for tickets for his uh, him and his little one. So uh... Miles, thank you. That was absolutely incredible. Thank you so much, and good luck for the rest of the season. No problem. No problem at all. Thank you. The Low Strangers is an independent Swindon Town fan podcast. The music was expertly created by Matthew Kilford and the podcast artwork is by the super talented John Daglish. Thanks for listening. Come on, Swindon. As I've done with a couple of the previous guests, I like to ask questions, test your knowledge. As of, so I've got a couple questions yeah. for you. As of February 2019... Who are the four mm. full England internationals that you played alongside? So players that have been capped by England at, at senior level mm. since then, who are they? Yeah, there's a few of them players that have done a bit better than me, ain't there? Um, I yep. think oh, Jordan Pickford, um, yep. um, John Stones, um, James Walkrose played for England. One more. Um, he was a sub. I think he was um, at Southampton. May have gone to Arsenal afterwards. Just, oh, there's your four. Yeah, yeah. So again, as of February two thousand and nineteen, who were the two future mm. Swindon Town loanies you played alongside that day? Uh, yeah. I know Jack Stevens was there. Um, pff, I hope I hope I didn't play with no, him, but um, he's a I'm twin. Not too sure, but... And they both played. But one might have come uh, on just as you were going off. Um, Newcastle United. Not one. It's one of the Murphy one twins. One of the Murphy yeah. twins. Josh, is it? No, but I asked or the Jacob. questions. Um, <laughs> it's Jacob. <laughs> so Jacob. Oh, okay. Yeah, he, yeah, he, he played only. A few, he played, I think, just a few times. But yeah, there we go. Well done. Hi, Ellis Pod fans, it's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs, like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy, or even Steve McMahon. Perhaps you'd prefer to channel the power of McPlant, like Darren Ward. Or maybe five chicken selects, one to enjoy for each time Ben Gladwin joined. Yep, there's one spare, but there's still time. And you don't need super scouts or data solutions to get your hands on any of these. McDelivery through the McDonald's app brings them all to you. At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 